Hi, listeners, and welcome to the Nerds of Business podcast. My name is Darren Moffat. I'm a director of WebBuzz, the growth marketing agency, and I'm your host. It's great to have you with us for the first of our special uncut episodes. As I mentioned in the previous episode, season one on branding has concluded and we're currently in production for season two. So to tide us over for a few weeks until the product development series begins, we'll be airing a mix of uncut interviews and amazing bonus content from season one that no one has heard yet. Today's uncut session features Mike Berland of data marketing firm Decode M out of New York City. Mike is an ex-political pollster from the United States who's worked with the Clintons and some of the biggest names in America. He's now the go-to marketing consultant for companies who want to track and measure their momentum. Now, if you've ever run a business, you'll know momentum is crucial for sales and revenue growth. He's developed a system which he calls the M Factor. What Mike has to say about getting and keeping momentum in a venture is essential listening for all entrepreneurs and business owners. If you're a political junkie like me, at the end of the episode, Mike also offers some fascinating insights into the current 2020 presidential election. So stick around for that. I hope you enjoy this special episode of Nerds of Business Uncut. I love data. I, I love kind of looking through the data. You need to have systems, you need to have structure. You're going to get chopped to pieces. Enthusiasm is unstoppable. We kind of hit a point where we were like, we need another lever. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and richer than you. <laughs> this is Nerds of Business. Well, hi there and welcome uh, to another episode of the Nerds of Business podcast. Uh, today, we've got something really special for you. Uh, we are really nerding out. We're going heavily into the data. It's a deep dive like never before into nerdiness here at Nerds of Business. And uh, we've got an amazing guest all the way from uh, New York City in America, uh, Mike Berland, who is the founder and CEO of a firm called Decode M. So they're a research and analytics firm and uh, they've had some really big clients uh, both in politics uh, but, of course, all across uh, business and enterprise, uh, mostly in North America. Um, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. New York nerds in the house. <laughs> Look, I, you know, I, I've really been waiting uh, for this interview because uh, it, it, it's the uh, – it's the very apogee of nerdiness, I think, uh, this chat. Uh, we're sort of a, a completely uh, uh, nerding out on data. So there's a lot to talk about, and, and um, I'm really keen to hear your story. Your, your bio describes you as a data and analytics guru. Um, for those listeners hearing about you and your firm, Decode M, for the first time today, what exactly does that mean? You know, what, what do you do uh, in, in, in your day-to-day work life? Well, um, we actually take data in all its different forms. We decode it and help our, t- our clients turn it into momentum, momentum for the growth of their business to um, help them exceed their goals, to reach new markets. But you know what's interesting, Darren? I started as a political pollster. So the first data I decoded was for politicians who wanted to get elected to office. 
Oh, right. Okay. And uh, and politics is the ultimate momentum because the politicians who win have momentum on election day and politicians who get the momentum too soon uh, peak out and lose and those who get it too late lose. So I became a specialist at timing momentum to hit on election day. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, I, I'm I'm a I, I've got two businesses here in Australia, and I'm a uh, a big believer in momentum. I'm often talking to my teams about you know you can feel it when you're losing it. You know that's the thing, oh and, and, you can, it hurts and you can in your stomach. It does, yeah, and you can also feel it when you've got it. Uh, and yeah. so uh, it, it is. Um, you've got to manage it. If, when you don't have it, it's a problem. You know, you're going backwards. <laughs> you're maybe starting to to go into the red. Uh, I'm really interested about. That journey, I mean, you started in politics, maybe let, tell us a, a bit more about that and how that kind of morphed into um, working for businesses and uh, into, your, into your current business at, at Decode M. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be a kingmaker and not a king. And what does that mean? It, it means a, a kingmaker helps the king get elected and keeps, and keeps him in office, whispers into his ears, gives him advice. But ultimately, I knew that the king ultimately gets dethroned and shot. And so rather than be the king, I would be the kingmaker and I could have many kings that I could work for over my career. And it was an early insight when I was 16 years old. Wow, that is incredible. You, you, you must have been a, a very interesting individual in the schoolyard. Uh, if you, you're sort of in the schoolyard as the kingmaker, uh, you're either very popular or very lonely, I, I would imagine. Um, well, I lost two elections. That's what happened. And so I realized that, and so the kingmaker never loses. The king loses. Mm, well, gee, that is, that's a very interesting insight. We could uh, go down that rabbit hole uh, a bit more. We might return to that uh, a little later. I mean, what, what, it is, what is it about your psychology, for instance, that, that draws you to that role? Is it the fact that you, you're, you're seeing further uh, the, the lack of ego, relatively speaking? You know, early on, I was able to understand persuasion mm-hmm. and, and what people, how people um, acted and behaved as uh, consumers, as as voters, as um, owners of businesses. And so I was able to translate that into action. So I knew what made people vote. If I knew what made people vote, then early in my career, I could take those lessons from the campaign trail and apply it to business. So if I knew how to make you vote, I could uh, help you be a better consumer and how to choose one brand over another. But what happened along the way is, and now we're, look, my career has spanned uh, nearly 30 years, which is sort of embarrassing at this point. But what happened over the, over the along the way is the data changed. So when I was starting out, um, and I was living in Australia, as, as Sydney, as I told you, we were doing... Uh, surveys, asking people questions and getting information back. And the only data that we had was for the questions that we asked. Over time, larger sets of data, um, behavioral data, consumer data, sales data, all started to become available. And then all of a sudden, when we get into um, into you know 2005, 2006, all of a sudden, social media data now starts to become available. So I no longer had to ask the questions all the time. Sometimes the data was just there for me. I just had to analyze it. Wow. So that's a really good point. Um, so you're essentially 
saying, if I understand correctly, that really, I mean, data's already always been there. You can always you could always go and get it if it wasn't available. Yeah. Um, but the rise of the the tech giants and 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 the social media platforms have really opened the world of data right up. Yeah, and I knew it before they did. That was what was great is. There were more data sets available 2005, 2006, 2007. Then they started to monetize it, and it started to dry up a little bit. Um, and we had to go to different data sets. But um, you know, the, in the early days of understanding the power of social conversation, tying that to actual behavioral data, you know, with, people always talk about big data, big data this, big data that. What a silly name. It's just data, you know, and it's data of what people are doing. And we used to have to, um, we, we, it used to be imprecise, and now it's much more precise. And everywhere we go, we're leaving little data um, nuggets. Yeah, well, um, that in itself is a fascinating question, we'll, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, before we get to that, how businesses can leverage that, this is potentially a nice segue into uh your book, your new book, uh, you've, you've, yeah. you've written uh, a couple of books previous to this one and you've just released a book called Maximum Momentum, How to Get It and How to Keep It. Um, I guess I'd start with the why question, Mike. Why did you write this book? I wrote the book um, actually for the things that we're talking about. Momentum was used so um, whimsically by everyone. You have momentum, you've lost momentum, you've got to get your momentum – the mo, the big mo, like everybody was talking about it. And yet they talked about it in an emotional, non-specific way. And I'm like, hold on. When I was in high school physics, momentum was, was you could calculate it. It was mass times velocity. Mm-hmm. Well, why does uh, momentum have to be an emotional? Why can't, why is it just what we feel in our gut? Why can't we quantify it? So I sought to quantify momentum using uh, metrics to quantify mass and to quantify velocity. And I turned momentum into a cultural metric called M factor. Oh, wow. Okay. And and so when did, when did you have that insight or when did you, when did you come up with that? Um, I had been working on it actually for five or six years. This idea of momentum was so important to me and the quantification it actually took a number of years to get the right data set because you couldn't calculate data on survey questions you had to calculate momentum on existing data sets and then i had to write proprietary algorithms to really deal with the velocity it's easy to measure mass but velocity uh, how things are how fast things are moving was was actually quite difficult and so that's where I put most of my effort. And then, you know, as anything, you have to test it for a year to make sure it's working. And so is this, uh, this is the, I guess, the point of difference that you bring to your clients, uh, I would imagine, uh, when it comes to data analytics. Um, is, is this, this is the key um, competitive advantage that you've developed, yeah? Yes. Our, our M factor can, can look back at what your momentum was for the past year. And then we can, nobody has a crystal ball, obviously, but you can then look forward for the next three months and see what is likely to happen. And so to quantify momentum and then to be able to compare it against any, uh, a brand can compare um, uh, to a person, to a celebrity became very uh, important. Great. And now this question might be difficult for you to answer 
in terms of brands that um, have global recognition. I mean, if you can skew it to more towards kind of globally recognised brands, that'd be great, but I understand if you can't. Um, what brands have captured momentum uh, in 2020? You know, which, which brands are thriving uh, amidst the, you know, the constant crises that we're, we're having in this very weird year? Well, um, the number one brands that are thriving, obviously, are the tech brands. Yep. The, the one we're on right now, Zoom, who would have ever thought that? I mean, Zoom, Zoom is clearly a winner of the pandemic yep. and the uh, uh, social and business acceptance of video conferencing. A brand that you would not have expected to win the pandemic has, which is Airbnb. You would have thought it was the end of Airbnb. And actually, the world moved towards Airbnb because it gives you such control over your spaces. And then um, there's some local brands that we've been tracking, which I'll, I'll give you a fun one. I don't know if it exists in Australia. Do you have Crocs shoes in Australia? The, the, the plastic shoes that you sort of wear on your, on your feet? Uh, we might do. Um, I'm. Uh, I can't say I'm terribly. Fa- I, you, 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 I'm sure that you haven't noticed, but I'm not terribly fashion conscious, Mike. So, um. <laughs> but there's a there's a brand of shoes that um, every uh, medical professional uh, wears. Every every person who works in a frontliner in a hospital. Oh, I know what you mean. They, they, yep. Yeah, they gave the shoes to all to all the they gave 640,000 shoes away mm-hmm. they did a number of collaborations so this brand that's been around for 20 years and has gone through various points of stagnation is now the hottest brand in the country wow and so there's so there's so there's a lot of um, a, a lot of brands that we see that adapted to the quarantine and and to and to sheltering at home yeah, look, I mean, it's definitely the pandemic has moved the market in, in, in such extreme and profound ways and it's definitely – there's now a huge bias towards digital and tech. These um, – you know, as a student of Momentum, uh, you know, these companies already had, you know, uh, quite a bit of Momentum in place but it's just accelerated – uh, in the consumer space, the and 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 actually in the in the in the SME B two B space, the take up of the digital channel, we've noticed it ourselves uh, in our digital marketing business here in Australia. We were battening down the hatches like probably lots of other businesses, going, "Oh my God, this is going to be terrible," and yeah. it's gone the other way. You know, uh, it's just best thing for us. Yeah. So, um, but uh, staying um, on the topic of momentum, you know, what are the threats to momentum that leaders and entrepreneurs? should be aware when, of you when know. you know when the business is is potentially sidelined by something like a global pandemic you know protests and 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 you know volatile elections so what 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 well, should should leaders look for leaders are often very scared to change and so true momentum requires continuous transformation and so we we say that there's five drivers of momentum there's disruption innovation, polarization, uh, 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 sticky issues, and social impact. When when things are going well for a businessman, they don't want to change it. They will ride it all the way up to the top. And that is death. You've got to, it's like leaving a party a half an hour early so that you don't wait for the party to come down. You leave when you leave when there was still a few minutes more to uh, to uh, to enjoy, and that's what business leaders need to do. They have to start the next transformation while they're riding the wave of the current one. 
Oh, okay. I'll, I'll pull you up there because that's actually, that's a killer point. So your message to entrepreneurs and business people is that this is not a, a, a sort of a binary thing. Uh, this is a, you're, you're in a constant state of transformation that you need to be managing the cycle of momentum. Yep. Yes. Momentum is a very clear cycle of up, you take a step back, you go up higher, you take a step back, you go higher. If you're not willing to take a step back, you will not have momentum. You will go up and then you will come down. And the effort that's required once you start coming down is so hard versus if you took, when you had momentum, if you took the step back and went higher, so much easier. Because when you have momentum, people want to work with you. They want to buy your product. They want to, um, they give you permission to innovate. And if you fail, they'll forgive you. When you don't have momentum, nobody wants to be around you. The accuracy of that last statement is, you know, I, I, I can relate to that. You know, if you don't have momentum, you know, it, it's uh, people can almost uh, taste it or smell it. Um, oh my God, they, they know it. They can, they can feel it. They, people want to be with winners and not that winners, momentum has no more compass, winners or losers, but they know when you have momentum and they know when you don't. So I guess a lot of listeners will be really interested in your observations around the steps that entrepreneurs and business leaders can take to pick up the speed and reach that maximum momentum quickly. You know, um, yeah, what, what, what can a typical sort of small to medium sized business do for that? A momentum is, uh, is agnostic to your size of your business. It's a, it, um, it, it doesn't have a moral compass. When, you're, when you look for business, you have to look at what is that um, disruption yep. or that innovation that you're going to make. How are you going to polarize and create FOMO, fear of missing out? It doesn't matter if you're a one-person office or a thousand-person business. You have to um, always be looking at that. And even in my business, we have to change continuously even the momentum guys have to continuously um, upgrade the momentum. And, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of our listeners are small businesses or they're entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, I think in, in that cohort, there is to some extent um, almost a, an idea that data is not for them or it's a bit irrelevant or, you know, data is for, for enterprise size businesses. Um, can you explain why? data is important for all businesses of all sizes? Um, because data helps you understand the future. Data, data, people always use data to look backwards, but that's not how I use data. I use data to tell me about the future. Um, whatever, the data that's already happened is interesting, but it's more interesting as I look to predict it. And so um, in any business, you have to use data to understand uh, what's going to work in the future? Who's our target? How are we going to, and, and then create a plan of how we're going to get there using the momentum drivers. So to continue on that theme, uh, let's run a hypothetical, you know, I, um, someone's a small business, you know, they, they've got limited resources and maybe they've got a team of five or 10. How, how, what, what's a, a concrete example of how they can leverage data to get that momentum like what what kind of data would they look at um and and what would they do do with it well we look at we look at our m factor which is a measure of cultural relevance to look at the forces that are going to impact their business where the opportunities and the white spaces 
going to be. So you have to you have to use data to understand how is your target audience or your target market changing? What are their needs, wants, and desires? And that's all out there. You don't have to buy that data. You just have to um, you just have to look for it. So I'll give you an example in the um, home sheltering or the COVID that we went through. It was very um, obvious to one of our um, uh, competitors, to one of our clients, that it was going to be a time of extreme comfort, that people were going to have to be, uh, uh, they were going to be stuck at home and they needed to be comfortable there. And whether it's with pads that go on their chairs or if uh, if it's things that go around their neck or if there's something that keeps their back straight, but there was going to be a huge market for comfort. Mm-hmm. We had another, uh, our client was focused on sleep. Now, sleep is a good business. Sleep is an, is an, is an evergreen market. We're always going to be looking to enhance our sleep. But there was a market opportunity for comfort all day long, not just comfort. Okay, so one, so the competitor grabs it, sees the opportunity, understands that people are looking for things they've never looked for. Like, I'm sure... I never thought about getting a seat cushion at home because I was going to be sitting at my kitchen table on my ass on a Zoom call all day. Never even occurred to me. Yep. But it happened, and I'm still there. So, um, so that creates an opportunity. So, what are the forces? People weren't going to the office. They weren't equipped. Here's an opportunity. All stuff that you could um, easily observe and, and and sort out, and then see data and understand what the opportunities and create a D to C opportunity. Fantastic. And for your work, you know, inside your business, uh, uh, what are the main data sources that you, you know, you, you usually or, or more often than not turn to? Well, um, we use four different types of data sets all the time. First of all, I'm a, a, a pollster. So we obviously use market research. Mm-hmm. We use uh, uh, social media conversation uh, data. We also use CRM that our clients uh, might, so Salesforce data uh, can be uh, extremely uh, helpful. And then we, we use um, behavioral data. And, and we bring in four different data sources all the time to help you know, make decisions, not overly relying on one. Like as a pollster, I know that market research data is good at answering the whys but not always good at identifying the what's. Okay. Uh, you, you know, I know that um, uh, Salesforce data can often help you prioritize your segments, but can't answer. But but can't answer. Uh, uh, you know what the future looks like. So the, all of these have to come together, and then you can get a very good answer. Excellent. And so to sort of take that down again to the the smaller businesses with less resources. Uh, I mean, obviously, bigger businesses that have got more resources or enterprise um, level ventures, you know, great potential clients for for you and and to code M. But let's just strip it right down to the smaller business for a minute. Yeah. Uh, what I'm taking from that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that where businesses can look for data is they can run their own surveys. Um, yeah. They can they can look in their CRM. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So they can they can they can get run some reports, extract some data, get some insights from there. Um, I know from uh, the work that we do here at uh, WebBuzz, they can uh, they can also look at um, uh, Google Ads. You know, so you can run. Oh my God, that's the best data in the world! And Google Trends, Google Ads, that's that data is basically free. 
Yep. You're if you're not collecting CRM data, you're not serious. Yep. Like you you need you need to have uh, some of that. And those are two data sources that should be just at your fingertips without any additional expenditure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and what about Facebook data? Um, uh, Facebook, if you're if you're buying there and they're giving you data, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, Facebook is so wonderful in its uh, ability to be targeted. I, I mean, I was at Facebook in the early days when they were coming up with some of that. And um, they know everything about you. They can really pinpoint. And so, yes, that data is excellent. What, what do you think, just on a related side note for a minute, I mean, um, in response to the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal, uh, Facebook yeah. removed a lot of uh, the, um, the, particularly the third-party kind of de- dem- demographic data. Um, yeah. And from an um, advertising and marketing perspective, that has, um, you know, I mean, Facebook's obviously still incredibly powerful, but some of that really amazing um targeting yeah, and profiling targeting. has has been stripped out of it yeah well, what do you make of that well i mean first of all uh privacy rules over and above everything so i think that's that's the first principle which is privacy data is important and do no harm um second it's uh it's a shame that that we can't use the power of the data um it will come back but facebook has to get some uh, some stand, some further standards in place and have more control. But ultimately, uh, we'll be able, once we get it in a more um, uh, authentic and, and validated way, consumers don't mind getting highly targeted ads. They like it because it, like everybody's um, like, like it, for instance, everybody loves Google and everybody hates Facebook. Who knows? I mean, this is like from as long as I've been doing research. Why? They find the Google ad data so incredibly helpful to their day-to-day life. They say, Google knows me. And Facebook, um, over the years, has become a little bit more clumsy. So as we get better, as Facebook gets better, and I think they will because they're a huge machine, um, the bar is now set. Can you make the data interesting? When you find those marketing companies who know how to use the Facebook platform or know how to use the Google platform. Well, that's gold and you don't pay more money for that. You just get better uh, uh, results. Yep. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. So your view is that, that a lot of that data that's been stripped out will eventually come back. I think, I, I, yes, it has to come back the right way. Again, um, the Facebook has gone through a number of transformations um, but people find value in Google knowing everything about you. They like the ads. They like the other products. Facebook just has to find that utility. Yep. But I, I think it's going to like, if you ask me, are we better off in a world where I know everything about you and I can help you live a better life on your terms? Absolutely. So everybody doesn't have to opt into it. But for those of us who want to, we're absolutely going to get the opportunity. The, the, but the powerful thing is it has to be my choice. Like, you can't just take my data. I have to give you permission. And when I give you permission, okay, I know, I know what that comes with. And younger generations, Gen Z, millennials, they're very comfortable sharing their data. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that. The younger generations are, as a rule, very comfortable with it. Um, but... That topic sort of segues again uh, quite nicely into another question I have for you. Um, uh, so, 
And it relates to the role of uh, quantum computing um, and how data is handled in the future. I'm, I'm talking about a thing called the singularity, um, which yeah. no, no doubt you're familiar with. So we might just back up a little bit and explain that to listeners before I ask the full question. Um, the singularity is a, um, is a theory um, put forward by um, very often the top tech thinkers, uh, particularly on the West Coast uh, of America, that um, it's that moment in time where uh, computers uh, gain consciousness and um, potentially with the rise of um, quantum computing, um, the, uh, the humans start to lose control uh, a bit of uh, how all this stuff works and you know the, the so-called rise of the robots uh, and so on. So um, you work in, 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 in the data space. Uh, you're obviously on you know uh, in, in that world of data and tech and so on. I mean, what's your view on this? Is the singularity something that um, uh, you think we can see in our lifetime? Uh, do you think we'll see? Uh, this so-called rise of the robots? It won't be, you know, our vision of our lives being taken over. It will be living our life on our terms and things seem to work better together. I, I like, people always ask me about technology. Is it good that our refrigerator can speak to our oven, can speak to our dishwasher, can speak to the car? Um, Sure, if you if you if that's the life that you want, but we're we're evolving towards that. I don't know what the end state is. I, I our momentum doesn't get there. But do I see, do I see a world of continuous automation to enhance our lives so that things that we want to uh, be better or more automated are, and things that we don't uh, are not? For sure. Um, do I do I ever feel like we're going to lose control? No. I, I think that's a, um, but I do, but I do see the world going there. And for the most part, I think it's great. Um, some things are kind of scary. Yeah. And, and look, personally, um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of these uh, devices that, um, you know, the smart assistants like uh, Alexa and, um, yeah. and, and the, because they're listening, they're always listening. They're uh, always listening. You have to wait. Exactly. Um, no privacy. Uh, there's no privacy, uh, and uh, but I think the the thing that people maybe aren't so aware of is your smartphone's always listening as well. Um, oh. So yeah, like it, it's uh, the fact that you get ads for a fridge after after you've been talking about a fridge with your wife. Yeah. Uh, it's no coincidence. Um, anyway, that's another. And I have nothing to hide. So like, if if Alexa wants to listen to me sing in the shower. Enjoy it. Yep. Okay, um, Mike from Decode M, the data science uh, guru, analytics guru. Uh, we now come to a segment called Nerd Under Pressure. Okay, so uh, Nerd Under Pressure, this is your, you're the data analytics nerd today, Mike, and uh, we're asking for one killer hack or tip you could give to business owners for how to use data to increase profits. I'm going to give you five seconds thinking time. Your time starts now. Okay, over to you. The number one hack I would give is don't be scared to disrupt 
and to be polarizing. Oftentimes, business people want to please everybody. And in today's world, you've got to choose your audience and you have to go for it. The best thing a business owner can do is disrupt yourself. Wow. Uh, but that is, that, is, that is really a killer hack. So disrupt yourself. So in a sense, yes. um, the most, what you're really saying there, that, I mean, that, that takes a lot of um, – requires a lot of ability to be self-analytical. And, and to yeah, step outside and, and of yourself and, and see where you are at, it, in reality at, at all times, yeah? Yeah, it's really hard to disrupt yourself because but, – but we know that that's the – we know that that's the momentum driver. Yep. And we know that polarizing leads to uh, emotional engagement with your, with your customers. It doesn't matter if you're the most B2B, you still have to be polarizing because that says, why us? Why choose me? Okay, so let's just go further down uh, that particular topic. Uh, that, that's that's uh, highly interesting. Polarization. Just uh, you know, I know what it is, but how? Give give us an example of how a business owner can can leverage that polarization. Say in a marketing campaign on Facebook or something. Yeah. Well, people always think that polarizing is bad. They think of it as I don't want to be polarizing because I don't want this on one side or the other. But in marketing, we know that it's really great to be polarizing so that your customers know that you're a brand for them and the targets who you who do you don't want know that you're not for them. Yep. And so polarizing is emotional engagement. And that is the key to success of any brand, B2B, B2C, it doesn't matter. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. No, that's that's a great insight. Thanks for that, Mike. Totally um, works. I, I, by the way, I live by this. And so like disrupting my own business. Uh, pisses my employees off all the time because they're saying, well, you said this and now we're doing that. And I'm like, did you read the book? Like, we're, we've got to continuously transform. There's no stopping. There's no, there's no coasting. There's no coasting. There's yeah. no coasting because do you know what? The, our clients will find somebody else. Yep. No, that's, that's exactly right. Okay, Mike, um, we now come to a, another uh, recurring segment called Nerd Superpower. So, uh, yes, a lot of work went into that. Um, so this <laughs> is where we ask you, uh, Mike Berland of Decode M, uh, a, a data science guru, um, as, as a business person, a business owner, um, what is you, what's your superpower? What do you think you bring to the world, to your clients, to your staff? Um, what's that one really killer skill that you've got that adds a lot of value? I have an ability to take a massive amount of data and to synthesize it into three things that you should know. Three, I, The data, literally since I was a kid, comes off the page and the three numbers come out and I can tell you the news you, you, you can use. Of, of any data set, 10,000 numbers, I can just look through it and know the numbers. It, it, it takes me no time. I, I think it must be the skill that a musician has when they can listen to a song once and just play it. I can look at a data set and within minutes tell you exactly what you need to know. So that's uh, that's amazing, frankly. But when So when did you start to sort of clock that, that you had this ability and that it was a bit special? I think I was in um, my I was an intern uh, my freshman year of college and everybody was struggling. And all of a sudden I was getting higher and higher work because I was so good at it, which really 
turned out to be horrible because I ended up working all day and all night. One guy, we had a client in Bermuda. And uh, so one of the interns who, who couldn't, the data didn't come off the page, he got sent to Bermuda and I got locked up in an office for like 16 hours to do data analysis. But I, but that's when I knew I had it. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously I would have liked the trip to Bermuda. Yeah, but you know, you you built a pretty amazing career and you know, several businesses <laughs> along worked, the way. It, so it definitely worked out. It's worked out. You've worked with some really big names, as you alluded to, uh, in politics and business. You know, you've done some work with uh, with the Clintons, uh, with Mike Bloomberg. Tell us uh, maybe a couple of you know sort of key success stories that you've had in the in the world of politics that our listeners can relate to and you know how your data insights really move the dial for the client or the candidate well each candidate let's deal with those three individuals because everybody i think even even where you are down under everybody knows something about bill clinton hillary clinton and mike bloomberg but they they were three very different clients who required different insights so for bill clinton um he always had an issue that um he was a little bit too far left of, of of the electorate and he was too progressive. And so the key to his reelection is how did we sort of triangulate between the left, the right and find that center? And Bill Clinton made the center acceptable to both Republicans and to Democrats. And he won. And then the second issue is he always had very good public values, but his private values were a little bit questionable. I mean, ultimately he was impeached for an affair with an intern, but but before that he had questionable business dealings and what have you. And so how did, and Bill Clinton, um, how to get him elected and make him acceptable was like, how do we position him into the center? Hillary Clinton was it was interesting because she was first lady for all those years and, and she uh, aspired to be a senator and ultimately she ran for president. But everybody um, it liked what Hillary d- had accomplished, but they never liked Hillary. And it was the it was an issue. So how do you respect someone who can get it done, um, but you don't like her? And so it really turned politics upside down for her senatorial race in 2000, 2006. Ultimately, she lost against Barack in 2008, and she lost against um, Donald Trump for the same issues is that people felt like they couldn't, they didn't like her and they didn't trust her. So that was the issue. Mike Bloomberg, who was a very successful business entrepreneur in New York, who, when I started working for him, I never even heard of him uh, because he was very much in the tech and, and finance space. And that wasn't my, my world. But what Mike, what made Mike unique is he loved data. And uh, the Bloomberg, the whole Bloomberg uh, 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 system is built on data. It's built on data. And so, right. I, so the insight from Mike was there's only 4 million voters in New York. Why do we have to take a sample of them? Why do we have to pull them? We can actually analyze each and every voter and give them a probability of how likely they are to vote for you. And we can identify, We only you only need... Um, you know, uh, 1.2 million voters will vote. You need 600 to win. Let's find the 600 that are going to vote for you. Then, uh, and then we had to position him of why does New York need a businessman and not a politician? So it was three very different uses. So Bloomberg was all segmentation, 
uh, and targeting. Hillary was all persuasion and getting people who didn't like her to vote for her because they thought she'd be good. And for Clinton, it was repositioning them so that he could be an acceptable choice uh, across party lines. Well, I, you know, I seriously could talk about this stuff all day. Um, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier before the uh, before we started recording. I'm a massive political junkie. I follow American politics very closely. Um, and so I can't resist. I've, I do have a couple of questions for you re- relating to... Uh, I thought you... I had a feeling you would ask me, but I wasn't sure and I wasn't going to force you. You uh, know, if you wanted to talk about the, you know, if this, what the weather doing today, I would have done that too. No, no, you don't have to force me, Mike. I'm, I'm, I'm a willing participant. Uh, and so uh, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, the, the first one is actually on Mike Bloomberg. So for someone that is obviously um, so well-resourced, uh, so data-savvy, why was his uh, primary campaign such a flop? Because voters aren't rational. Voters are, we know this, that voters are completely emotional. And um, when he was on center stage, he did not appeal to them emotionally. Um, he he was not prepared for the questions. He uh, Elizabeth Warren really uh, uh, asked him very hard questions, and he gave flip answers, and that turns voters off. Mike Bloomberg, on paper, is the most rational choice. Uh, he's run a big city. He knows how to run a business. He's an uh, expert on uh, with the John Hopkins School. He's an expert on pandemic health. He is the most rational choice of any candidate there was. But he was emotionally unacceptable to voters, particularly Democratic primary voters. And his instead of answering the questions really straight, he disrespected uh, Senator Warren, and he disrespected the electorate, and there's no tolerance for that in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. In the Republican Party, I mean, with Donald Trump, you would say, well, wait a minute. He does all of those things, and he seems to be doing fine, because they have different values. They have different values. And and so a couple of observations I'd make there. I mean, I think, firstly, you work in data, but humans aren't rational. Uh, mar- mm-hmm. Marketing and branding is hugely emotional, uh, right. So uh, I'm sure that we'll get to that very interesting nexus between the data and the emotion. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, delving into that in more detail in a minute. Um, but uh, the other point I'd like to make is that, that that line that you just said a moment ago around you know, humans aren't rational, and that applies equally to business. You know, And so there's a lesson in that, and I'm sure you spend a lot of your time interfacing with um, your business clients uh, around that, that look, you know, here's all the data, but, you know, sometimes it, it's counterintuitive, um, which leads me to Donald Trump. Uh, so, you know, it's the elephant in the room. We, we, we will spend a few minutes on this. Uh, what's your take uh, on the current uh, lay of the land and, 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 and the momentum? Because uh, the momentum well, seems to be shifting a little bit. It's a, it seems to be almost like a weekly or fortnightly proposition at the moment, but but uh, if you look at the uh, the trend line over the last uh, four months back to April, March, uh, Biden is consistently ahead. Uh, yes. And Donald Trump perhaps had the worst June and July of any president in the history of the United States. Maybe the worst June and July of any. I mean, I've, I've seen some most 
people would be thrown out of office. If they, you know, in your country, they would throw them out of office for sure. They couldn't survive June and July. I mean, the country's facing such a pandemic. The economy is going to shit. He's making up stuff. Um, but the key to winning in politics is to have momentum on election day. And what happens before that uh, um, matters, but it um, it's really how you manage. We know that momentum is a, uh, is, is a number of transformations that have to happen. So uh, Biden's momentum has gone up and it's plateaued. Yep. So um, uh, uh, Trump's momentum was high and it went way down and now it's starting to move up. He's still, I mean, we never really know, but I think in my pollster days, I would say he's still trailing, but he has momentum and Biden is plateaued, which is very bad for Joe Biden. Wow. Uh, and, and so what what's going on right now is um, a couple things, Darren, which you might know about Americans. Americans are future looking people and are eternally optimistic. We have no ability to look backwards and we have no introspection. It's just characteristics of being American. It's why we got up, we got on the ship, we went to find, we always go west. We always feel we can get in our car and drive wherever we want. But it's just, it comes with being American. So Joe Biden is talking about the pandemic, which is, and all the mistakes that Donald Trump made, which is 100% accurate and, and just been devastating for the country. But it's still looking back. And Donald Trump is looking forwards to the reopening, um, to getting rid of this. Um, there's a lot of uh, rioting and looting going on as, we've, as we're going through uh, uh, gender and social justice issues, gender, um, racial equality. So it's a very interesting time. And so we don't know what's happening. But Trump definitely has momentum, but he's but his momentum is lower than Biden's. A long answer to an easy question. So, Mike, uh, uh, another recurring segment for Nerds of Business, uh, we put to tradition, we put all of our guests through what we call the Nerdometer. Oh, I love it. It's the Nerdometer, uh, TM, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you'll only find the Nerdometer on Nerds of Business, and, and uh, we, it's a pretty simple um, uh, device. It's really where we're simply uh, surveying uh, our guests, asking them on a scale of 1 to 10 how nerdy they are. Now, um, Mike Berland, I've got to say uh, it's been a delight talking with you so far. My take on you is that you are – a very articulate, urbane nerd, but nevertheless quite nerdy. So uh, what, what do you say? What's, uh, what's your rating, your self-rating for nerdiness out of 10? Oh, 10 plus. <laughs> I'm, off your, I'm, off, I'm, off the, I'm off the chart. I'm, All right, there we go. 10 plus. He's off the chart. That's excellent. That's, uh, I, I find that uh, that makes me so happy. We love it when someone breaks the nerdometer. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, I would be uh, – I, and you know, you have to own it for yep. many years. I didn't own it. I own it now. Data is cause data is cool now. Like, like the, 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 the nerds won the analytics won computational, all that. We're the winners. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I, I actually in writing a sort of little blurb and bio for this, uh, 
this podcast. That's exactly what I said. It's like the nerds have one, you know, like it's, uh, you remember, you know, I think we're probably a similar vintage. Uh, uh, you remember the film uh, from the eighties, revenge of the nerds. Do you remember that? You know? Yes. And I think 1984, right? So, uh, yeah. and that yeah. back, back then nerds were, was, you know, pimply faced, uncool, I never got the girl, all the rest of it. But yeah, now nerds really are running the world. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you don't have to look far to see evidence of that. So, um, so thank you for uh, uh, having a go on the Nerdometer. It's wonderful when oh, we yeah. see someone break it. Um, so, uh, Mike, uh, as I said, we are um, pretty much at the end of the formal questions for today. Um, uh, do you have anything you'd like me to ask you, anything I've missed? Uh, do you want to get in any other points uh, before we uh, wrap it up? No, I, I, I really enjoyed all of it. I think um, I appreciate it's um, – I've appreciated, I've done um, another podcast um, from, uh, I think the guy was from Melbourne. And um, it's it's interesting just how inquisitive and um, how um, your market is really leading in, in so many of these areas. And as I look at our, our M Factor and, and one thing, your market is um, such on the leading edge. It's a combination of, of all this, all this sort of in, uh, enablement of, uh, of what's going on in Asia and then with what's going down in the market. And so uh, I just love the interaction, the intellectual give and take and, um, and the rapport and the people I developed. So thank you. 